Hello and welcome to the Corrie Miller podcast. This is the fifth in a series of 12 episodes timed to coincide with this first year of Brexit and the centenary of partition in Ireland. I'm Padraig Tuama, and over these interviews, I'm talking to a rich lineup of guests having conversations about Irishness and Britishness through the lenses of politics, history, art and theology. On this week's episode, I'll be talking to Claire Mitchell, a writer and sociologist who'll be telling me about her unconventional and surprising family background. What I have come to appreciate now is how anti-sectarian it was as an upbringing. I mean, we were definitely Protestant evangelicals, but the charismatic part meant bringing Catholic friends into our lives and worshiping with them. I mean, I never had a whiff or trace that there was any kind of Irish language in my family at all. And it's kind of very moving to me to discover that. Hello, you're very welcome to the Corrie Mila podcast. My name is Padraig Tuma, and with me today is Dr. Claire Mitchell, a freelance writer and former senior lecturer in sociology at Queen's University Belfast here in Northern Ireland. Claire's written widely on loyalism and evangelicalism and Protestant identity on the island of Ireland, and she joins me from her home in Belfast. Claire, you're very welcome. Hi, Padraig. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Um, what room are you in your house? Are we speaking to you from today, Claire? I am in my little girl's bedroom, surrounded by <laughs> Harry Potter books and world maps. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. Magic and travel. Two exactly. fantastic things. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Um, so I'd love to start with your personal background, Claire. Um, I know you were raised as an evangelical and you moved away at some point and you started to study evangelicalism. Um, what was the culture of your religion like growing up? I suppose it wasn't really a traditional package of religion and politics in Northern Ireland. We were part of the evangelical charismatic movement, house churches and the like. So it was intense. It had shades of light and dark. I suppose what I have come to appreciate now is how anti-sectarian it was as an upbringing. I mean, we were definitely Protestant evangelicals, but the charismatic part meant bringing Catholic friends into our lives and worshipping with them. Um, it also came with political stuff, like I've always had an Irish passport. Our politics was always very non-unionist. And I, I don't think that was typical um, during yeah. the Troubles. And um, that was quite a, a special kind of gift, really, for yeah. my parents. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say often evangelical package comes with the imagination that it's automatically of a particular point of view and automatically of a particular social group. And you're saying that that wasn't the case at all. No, absolutely the opposite. I mean, I remember when the Anglo-Irish Agreement happened in the 80s, there was a, a day of protest, like a strike, when everybody wouldn't go to work and wasn't going to send their kids into school. And I remember being in P5 and it was me and this other little boy from Community of the King. Um, we <laughs> <laughs> weren't unionists and it was the two of us sitting in a big cold classroom um, <laughs> up night of, of that politics. So I didn't really understand that at the time, but I've really come to appreciate that. It, there was a lot of um, darkness there as well, because the, I mean, the, it was a supernatural upbringing. And even though my parents necessarily, it wasn't coming from them. Once you kind of leave to the wider kind of structures of the church, youth groups, and you kind of develop your own life with it. It was very much angels and demons and restriction and rules and quite damaging if you were, I don't know, LGBTQ or an independent woman or, you know, when the consequences yeah. of sin were really high. Like I remember my biggest fear when I was, I don't know, maybe eight or nine was the Antichrist coming back and that my faith wouldn't be strong enough to not get the barcode <laughs> and join the wow. underground Christian resistance. So there was a lot of, I don't know, trauma I guess with that. Yeah. So when I went to college, I just got out of here and spent a long time kind of processing and recovering from that. I was keen to ask you about college because you, I know you did undergrad and PhD and maybe even more postdoc work in UCD in Dublin. Yeah. What brought that decision? I'm um, just doing the opposite of what everybody in my school. 
<laughs> was doing. I don't know. I had a bit of Celtic mist in the eyes, like, and I, I knew I had this Irish part of my identity. And, uh, like, it meant a lot to me, you know, reading Yeats and Heaney. And, like, it was a real inner world that I had developed listening to Irish language radio. I didn't have a clue what it meant. So there was a draw there, something that had to be explored. But, you know, it was also freedom. And, you know, I didn't go to Dublin and um, explore (laughs) Celtic dimensions of my identity. I went to Dublin and I went on the piss and I (laughs) relaxed. And I didn't have to think about all of this stuff for a long time. You know, I just had opted into that really easy Irish identity where I was maybe a Nordy and a bit weird because of that. But it was easy. It was pints and wheelings and gigs and music. And it was, you know, it wasn't as fraught as it is up here. But then obviously I went and did um, a PhD in religion and politics and continued that. That's so interesting that you were able to bring that with you intellectually. Did it feel safer to explore those things south of the border? Um, I don't know if it was so much safety as kind of picking a scab would be a negative way to put it or a positive way would be self-therapy. I had a lot of questions about the way I grew up and and a lot of questions about the way that religion interacted with politics in the North. And I just needed to explore that more. And that was really a journey that started, yes, with curiosity, but also with a lot of kind of anger and you know, big feelings. But really, by the end of that process, um, dealt with things that, uh, yeah, I felt settled about. And I liked evangelicals <laughs> again. Wow. By the end of that project, even so the kind of fundamentalist evangelicals who, you know, I would be so at odds with politically. I was going to ask, were there things that you learned about evangelicalism when you did your studies or you did your research in your PhD that you hadn't thought of before? And maybe tell us what the kind of question you were exploring in the research was as well. Well, there were a couple of projects. I guess the one that made the biggest impact on me was work I did with Gladys Daniel about evangelical journeys. And the idea for that really came from our Bible group or youth fellowship growing up. And we were wondering why all the people who had the same kind of religious upbringing as us in the North, why some were complete atheists and heathens, why some had settled in more liberal congregations and some had become like evangelical pastors or worship leaders themselves. Like, how can we have all ended up in such different places? So that was the real kind of jumping off point of curiosity. So we went and asked about 100 people what was going on and find people converting and becoming more conservative. It was after John Cree and it was like the agreement was very kind of fraught political time so a lot kind of tumbled out about politics as well um what did we find I mean I I, again I started off because of my own kind of political beliefs which would be much more kind of a Protestant dissenter say than um a unionist I I did struggle you know with (laughs) Doing some of the interviews, very uncomfortable people would often try to convert me. And um, it brought up a lot of difficult feelings. But, you know, once you have such intimate human experiences with people, I mean, we were asking them, what's your journey over time? What are the things that have happened in your lives? And they would feed us dinner and cups of tea and you would go to Lou in their house. Do you know what is so weirdly into it? Like little, their little yeah. soaps and what little pictures they have on the wall. And their worlds did start to make sense to me from the perspective of themselves and the things that they needed answered. So I really left, I mean, just as strong in my own political descent, but really with an attitude of judge not, you know. Yeah. I'm so interested in how you as a sociologist in that project took stories and took those stories so seriously that you began to investigate the tiny little phrase or the tiniest little word and begin to see how that might indicate some aspect of identity, some aspect of a person's own kind of sense of change or sense of defiance. Story seems to be remarkably important to you in the work you do. Everything is stories, isn't it? It's how I understand the world. I don't know why. My parents get frustrated talking to me sometimes because they like to talk about philosophical things. And um, my husband gets frustrated because he wants to have different types of conversations. But everything for me comes back to anecdote, personal story, 
not gossip, but just, you know, the, the small interactions that make up all of ourselves. I love it. That's amazing. You know, working with Gladys, who was herself like a person of faith, even though I've moved away myself from the faith, it was a nice combination. And we decided at the start that we were really just going to accept people's stories on their own terms. And if somebody told me they had voices in their head and that it was the voice of God and the voice of the devil, that I wasn't going to judge that in a scientific way. I was going to accept it and try and get inside their shoes and understand the world from their perspective and I don't know that, that particularly went down terribly well like in the academic community it wasn't really you know <laughs> I don't remember really brilliant academic reviews of that book but I felt that I had understood people a bit better and I had humanized them and yeah and hopefully vice versa so you came back to Belfast to work in Queens after you had um, after you had done this research. It it struck me in thinking about, you know, who you were when you come back, that in a certain sense, these six um, levels of evangelicalism and the six groups regarding change, people who converted to it, folks who were deepening evangelicalism, those who maintain a steady faith, those who moderate their evangelicalism or try to transform it or those who leave it. In a certain sense, you went through most, if not all of yeah. those. <laughs> Multiple times. Oh, really? <laughs> in a well, the conversion, way. you know, you like to do at age four, six, eight, ten, just keep it topped up. <laughs> Your children go to a Catholic school. It's quite they a journey. Do. Yeah, I mean, I would like to say, you know, we did it as a great act of peace and reconciliation. We just um, had an accidental encounter with the school and just really loved the community ethos of it. Um, and yeah, it it shouldn't have felt like a big decision to us because we're probably neither's, nuns, nothings, <laughs> not yeah. taking part in that kind of communal politics. But yeah, it, it was a bigger kind of Rubicon to cross than I thought. Um, I knew within a couple of hours that it was 100% the right decision. And it was dead funny because, you know, all the agonizing we've done already <laughs> once your child <laughs> and the, the Catholic system. Oh, my goodness. We were just put to shame by the ordinary people who were just already living their lives like that. Do you know, not intellectualizing it at the school. It's full of people in mixed marriages. It's full like people having cross community banter. One girl had a bad dye job one day call it herself Orange Lil, another Protestant at the school. <laughs> Do you know there would be people in loyalist bands at the school? And I have just loved that kind of everyday ordinariness of the school gate. And honestly, I think I have learned more about the north of Ireland standing, talking to the mass at the school gate. And they've taught me so much um, in a way that I didn't really access, I think, with the academic work. So I don't know that we've got it theologically nailed down, my littlest. Um, I think he still thinks that the priest is actually God. And <laughs> and I did catch them trying to make bath water into holy water one night. So I don't really know what it's doing for their religious life, but at least they have a lot of options open to them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even already in this conversation, like when it comes to evangelical charismatic communities and when it comes to the community around a Catholic school, you're already saying that the surface of those things actually betrays the fact that they're already full of diversity and full of um, different kinds of people meeting each other with all kinds of unexpected yeah. political and social connections and allegiances. Oh, absolutely. Like, I think you can get drawn into like a, a Twitter parody of what it feels like to live and work and be in Northern Ireland and you just look at the like the worst examples of trolls online and you think that's what they're like and that's what it's like out there but um, I really try to have a rich offline life and anytime I get depressed I just close the computer I just walk out into the world and into the local shops and just be with people. And honestly, I talk to a lamppost. And if you find, <laughs> if you are open, I probably have on many occasions. If you're open keep an eye out for you. <laughs> to the world and, and curious and non-judgmental, and if you just open your mouth and go there, I have to say my experience of Northern Ireland is, is just not 
of the way it might seem to others if you just looked at our political dysfunction. Oh, interesting. I mean, it's rules for living, isn't it, to, to have a rich offline life, especially if you're involved in writing and putting opinion pieces out there to make sure that you're not only living. Do you think that you're a growing number of people whose um, community life is already really rich and diverse, you know, in the midst of their political and religious allegiances and where their kids go to school or where they work, that actually the diversity is already there? It's just not being amplified? Yeah, I do think that. Absolutely, I think that. I think that, I mean, if you think about my parents bringing us up in the context of the Troubles and they were really, you know, definitely doing a politically different thing. But, you know, we didn't have anywhere that we could go as kids that they felt would be safe to explore and express that. And then yeah. if I think about my life now and, you know, I'm going for a walk with uh, an exclusive brethren friend next week and I'll meet my anti-vax friend at the school gate um my muslim friend who I'm getting a cake off and and then I think about my children's lives and the radical leap again that they're going to take like I don't even think they could tell you if they were protestant or catholic you know yeah. or how they fitted into all of that and I don't think that's just us as I said ordinary people are kind of put me thinking in my house <laughs> about being open put me to shame because I just think that's how most people live there's just a isn't there a generosity of life in the north where you know there are these big divisions but we all have these creative ways of telling people Do you know what's okay I remember my husband in the kitchen and we would say dairy you know and the tree guy came over and I think he thinks we're Catholics because our kids uniform and stuff um so Tim Pitt was talking about something he'd been to London Derry I was like a double take like what are you saying that for but he was making an accommodation <laughs> to the tree guy because you know his name is uh. probably Protestant where we live and the tree guy came back and he fires out a sentence with about five dairies in it you know <laughs> just to signal back to my husband you know that's okay you know, you don't have to do that wow. for me and I accept who you are and we can have this conversation freely. And I just love that. And I think that's the fabric of life here for me. That's lovely. Generous wow. accommodation. As you think about your political life, you've become a member of the Green Party. What led you to that? I'm not sure I want to say that now after saying the Green Party <laughs> government in the South. Um, a Green Party uh, came about just looking for a political home in the north um i don't know I, I tried on the other neither alliance kind of identity for a while but i, I just love heritage and history and the, the island that we live on and i just wanted something a bit more connected and a bit richer and um, i guess yeah i have really found my tribe um in terms of the friendships that i've made and even you know i would live in a quite protestant area but I am no I'm friends with through the Green Party with trade unionists and witches <laughs> and ecologists and British Labourites and Irish learners and speakers and you know it's just so diverse and I absolutely love that. And the connection with kind of landscape and heritage and taking that seriously has meant a lot to me. I, I haven't loved um at first I was quite excited to be part of an all-island party you know and taking part in all the stuff in the south but I think the Green Party here in the north because of our context because there haven't been like lots and lots of kind of options for people who are opting out and doing different kind of left-wing politics I think it's attracted a, a quite radical bunch of people in the north and it's maybe a bit different in the south you were telling us earlier on about leaving your evangelical background behind, but it's not the only area where you've um, taken particular choices that might surprise some people, so to speak. Um, you've written quite brilliantly about your yearning for the Irish language, almost like a ghost limb. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this one's been like a real journey for me over the years. Um, I mentioned earlier about having a touch of the Celtic mist going on when I was growing up. And, you know, that's really great when you're 17. But, you know, when you're in your 30s and 40s, you kind of need a more mature version of that. But I have always, um, I have always just felt this kind of absence or pang for 
a kind of Irishness, however that's expressed, but that I haven't had the kind of social options to explore. I mean, I was telling somebody the other day, I remember having a wee lilac tape recorder and I was about 14 or 15, you know, just from the Argos catalogue. And I'd sit in my room totally by myself and um, I'd listen to John Peel on the radio and I'd listen to the Irish language programming. And um, you know the way we'd make ourselves wee mixtapes <laughs> back yeah. in the day? And I used to totally. record wee tunes from Irish language radio and onto the mixtapes and then play them back. And this was a totally private kind of thing that I was doing. I don't think I'd ever really thought about it until this week. And um, I carried those tapes around with me and I, I just could not decode them. There was a song called Donal August Morag and I didn't even know anyone called Donal. I didn't know what Agus meant, even the simplest thing, you know, to ask what, I had nobody to ask, you know, what is this song? And, you know, even up to five years ago, that would come on the radio, because I listened to Radio Falcha all the time, hoping to learn Irish by osmosis. And my kids would go, that's your song, mommy, like, that's your song. <laughs> and and it, it took me to go um, to Taurus a couple of years ago, um, Linda Irvine's Irish language um, kind of program in, in the Newton Arts Road to kind of start to join all these dots up and almost decode these little fragments that I've been yeah. carrying around with me. The amazing part of it is that um, Donal Agus Morag is just a gorgeous example of it. The more I have tapped into and tried to embrace and put meat on the bones of what an Irish identity is in the north of Ireland, the more it's unlocked the kind of Scottish dimensions as well, like huh. Morag. You know, that's yeah. a song about um, a couple here getting married on Rathlin Island. And <laughs> the Irish, they would have spoken, right? Yeah? It would be a mixture of Irish and Ulster and Scots and, you know, this beautiful blend. Yeah. So that's what I, I kind of meant, like coming to a more mature sense of what that Irish Irishness meant. You know, it's not like the Celtic mist, but it's no. very rooted in Protestant traditions and like the mingling between Scots and Irish culture. And, and that's become interesting and important for me. I noticed in your article that you were kind of almost awkwardly saying, look, I don't believe in this kind of ghost limb of Irish. But yet you then go on to ask these questions. What is this Irish shaped space? Am I making it up? How can you feel sore for the absence of something you've not quite known? And it sounds like that's been with you for decades. Oh, yeah, my whole life. Absolutely. I mean, I talked about it in the piece as being a ghost slim, and I can't really describe it any better than that. It feels like a phantom thing and you know, you feel it in your heart and you know, as a sociologist, that there's nothing. I wasn't looking even for an ethnic thing or a bloodline to be traced yeah. back. It was just a set of stories that felt important to me and I could not connect them up for a long time with things that happened in, in, in my story and my family's journey. And I did, as the article um, yeah. was on to. I was going to ask about that bloodline. Um, I know that your, your grandmother, Dora, has an extraordinary story that you can tell. Yeah, uh, my granny, my own granny was a lo lovely woman and she... Um, was just very ordinarily Protestant and Unionist. And I did not really question any of that until I was doing my ancestry recently. And oh my goodness, it just became addictive. I just became, I just wanted to look for the people who, who tapped into my story, the women's lives, the people who were seeming to do different things politically. And one of the things I had a kind of notion to see was it in there was the Irish language and yeah in my granny's family I then came across a whole kind of strain of the family who come from the Shankill well they came from the Docklands and Sailor Town before that which is quite religiously mixed actually at the time and there were um, quite a lot of then Catholic intermarriages in the family and then they moved to the Shankill and the whole family are Irish speakers and um, very working class. I would say really a lot of the streets look like slums that they're yeah. living in at the time, like a very hard life in many ways. And 
It's just so fascinating. And they weren't really literate. Uh, you know, they're always signing the documents with their mark. So these memories then were paused. Obviously, like it, I find an Irish in the 1901 census, it doesn't, it's been erased. I don't know what happened to it. 1911, they're all just monoglots speaking English. And, you know, I'm just trying to look at what's happening on their streets at the time, because, you know, the census, you can find that. And, you know, I can see the political context hardening in the north. And you can see a mural of Carson being thrown up on Doris Gable Wall. And their neighbour, who's from County Kerry, is shot for talking back um, whenever there's a curfew, talking back to the army. And, you know, you can just see how a family really struggling, multiple kids getting dinner on the table. You just want to keep your head down, you know? Yeah. I, I think this was all in the years before partition. So this was when it was all still the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And so yeah, absolutely. There, there wasn't a, a north at that stage. And then because those stories are not written down, right? Because they're poor people's stories and they're women's stories and they're um, not official stories. And then the, the kind of the history that we've had since and then the troubles, there weren't stories that were maybe talked about in families. There weren't memories yeah. that were passed on. I mean, I never had a whiff or trace that there was any kind of Irish language in my family at all. And it's kind of very moving to me to discover that. All of that said, I wouldn't have cared if there was no Irish in my family because I believe that we all choose our identities and maybe it was my parents who broke the chain. Maybe it was me. Corrymeela is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, we support groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. These remotely recorded podcasts come from our kitchen table to yours because we can't be together in the same room talking about these important topics in this important year. If you want to take the conversation further, we've got some discussion and reflection questions for you and a full transcription too. You can find those on our website, corrymeela.org forward slash podcast or linked in our show notes. You're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. I'm Padraig Otuma. With me today is Dr. Claire Mitchell, a freelance writer and former senior lecturer in sociology at Queen's University here in Belfast in Northern Ireland. I mean, interestingly, it sounds to me like you have active Irish speakers in your family history more recently than I do. I don't think that we really? had. I think it was my great, great granddad was the last one who was a first language Irish speaker. Um, during the famine. That's so interesting. And it's all over yeah. the Shankill as well. I looked yeah. up all their streets, you know, and um, between 5 to 15% in all their streets were speaking Irish around that time. Uh, you're learning Irish now, aren't you, Truss, with um, Linda Irvin? How's that going for you? I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, I started um, by taking the kids. But yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> trying to make sure your kids aren't being mental whilst trying to learn new languages quite hard. <laughs> so <laughs> started going back um, myself, and do you know, it, it just a, a few things just really clicked in. They always start with place names, and you know, they always start. <laughs> we're talking about um, Bally Hackamore, Bally Hackamore. I don't right pronunciation townland of the big poo you know which kind of takes our well-heeled east belfast area down a peg or two and always ends <laughs> in much laughter but just realizing that these kind of anglicized versions of place names we use every day and the cross in the road and the way the water swoops up over the field and it's you know it just absolutely made sense to me and then my friend richard o'leary pointed out at one stage that we speak Hiberno-English and all the things that maybe schools try to iron out of your speech, do you know, the colloquialisms and the informality that it comes from the Irish. And actually, if you allow yourself to speak in your native tongue, you're repeating the, the Irish 
kind of grammatical structure and that actually makes it, it just opens up a portal into making Irish for me easier to understand. So yeah, little moments of revelation. I remember hearing a, an instance of that where somebody around a table speaking English said to somebody, you wouldn't pass me the salt, would you? Where you're asking in the negative conditional I... rather than saying, <laughs> please pass me the salt. But mm -hmm. in Irish, you just you do that as a kind of a, a way that you want to make it easy for a person to opt out. Um, yeah. And by asking in the negative conditional, that's you, that's much more frequent in the Irish language. But the way that people here speak English can sometimes seem a little bit like, why did you ask me for something by telling me that I probably wouldn't do it? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. It's really generous, isn't it? Yeah. It's just a softer <laughs> way to speak. It's kind of funny yeah. as well. Um, I'd love to hear from you about, you know, your opinion and your reading and your analysis about how Protestant identity has changed since partition um, and is changing again now, obviously, as we're in 2021. Um, what did partition and the state of Northern Ireland eventually do to Irishness amongst Protestants that you can see? Swallowed it up, I think, is the answer. Um, made it retreat, become private. Um, I'm reading a amazing book at the minute, Guy Biner's Forgetful of Remembrance. I feel like I've been reading it for years because I have, it's like 800 <laughs> pages. Um, but it's a beautiful book about how, you know, going back to the United Irish Rebellion, that these, this kind of radical Protestantism has always existed and it has at some points in our history, it's been allowed space and freedom to breathe and it's been safe to tell those stories and be that way. And then other points in our history, and I guess after partition would be one of those, and that space has contracted sharply and it hasn't been safe to be this kind of Protestant. And I mean, I what Guy Biner finds is that it's still out there to you know people have little relics and mementos and stories and memories. And it's like you can't officially suppress that. And I feel like we're partition closed that down maybe it opened up a bit the troubles certainly shut that down and i kind of feel like we're in a moment that you can name that and voice that protestant diversity i mean i, I think it always existed throughout the troubles of described my upbringing which is not a conventional unionist protestant package um it's always been there just it never gets space yeah, I am struck that, you know, you as a sociologist, I'm sure heard many, many individual stories of absolute trauma from the troubles. You know, the word yeah. troubles can come into English from the Irish tribloid, which has a connotation of the bereavements rather than a spot of bother. And so to an Irish language ear, tribloid or the troubles does carry a weightiness to it that isn't that isn't so light as an only English speaker would think. But the the thousands and thousands and thousands of stories of grief and shock and injury and trauma that certainly became a new culture in itself also um, over the, the latter part of the 20th century. Yeah, I think so. And it's really sad, isn't it? I can even see that in my family, Do you know, where like certain strains would have lots of mixed marriages and they would find ways to not fall out with one another and participate in each other's cultures. My granny was a, a champion Irish um, dancer and that <laughs> Granny Dora. No, it was the other side of the family, the Nuri ones. They had a lovely kind of weavy in and out of uh, converting every generation to the other religion. <laughs> um, so and then seeing other members of the family who were maybe um, be specials and who you know, I can I, I feel in an unusual position as a Protestant to have known people who have suffered loss and death of loved ones because of the IRA, but have also in my wider family circle been related to people in the security kind of ecosystem, I don't know what to call it, of the North who hated Catholics and they were bigots and uh, um, I'm obviously not generalizing that to everybody but I don't think I think that needs to be named by Protestants yeah. and that's a very very difficult thing. Um, Why is it difficult to name that? Um, because uh, it's your family and it's your upbringing and it's um, you can be disloyal in your politics, hypothetically, but you can't throw Uncle Billy under the bus because we all want to think that 
our families were doing the right thing and you know in their heads they probably were doing the right thing to the extent that they understood that um but i remember interviewing a distant relative for one of the projects i did you know when he was sitting there with a the history of israel um aragon weekly a buyer's guide <laughs> on the other side of him and he was showing me um, a Sinn Féin oath that he seized from a house you know and he was really he was the way he told the story about ransacking the house and do you know i could just i just put myself in the position of the family in that house and and that kind of broke my heart and uh, that's something i can just say now because he's not with us anymore um i don't know it's very difficult and also you don't want to impugn like a whole you yeah know, of course force security you know i'm not saying that this was everybody i'm just saying that it was real yeah i can understand that the the threat of saying something that would be against your family would might actually mean that people who would consider themselves to be quite mixed in their politics and religious and social views that they nonetheless might keep quiet because of a fear of being seen to be disloyal to to blood and to trauma i suppose and to trauma because you know often when you find people who think like that it's a story of loss as well isn't it for them and loss of loved ones and what yeah. do you think? I mean, there's trauma, but there's also fears or concerns, whether real or imagined. What do you think there's such what do you think the strong opposition to certain forms of Irishness might be amongst some folks? Um, what is the fear? Is it that the northern Protestant identity is going to be swallowed up as if that's somehow antithetical to Irishness? Or what do you think a fear might be? Well, I don't think all Protestants have that fear. I think probably yeah. more of them don't than do. I think during the Troubles, there was probably like a safety element, you know, maybe going to an Irish language class in the places that I could have done that, I wouldn't have been allowed to do it because my parents wouldn't have thought that was safe. So there's probably a hangover from from then. I think part of it is just um, sectarianism, to be honest with you. And then I, I, and I think it's really, really sad because I think when you um, disparage the Irish language, you cut off your nose to spite your face because you lose the Scots. You become yeah. one of those people who disdains heritage. And it's a, it's, a, it's a class thing as well, isn't it? It's not it's not proper. It's not acceptable. It's uneducated. It's threatening. And then I just think encounter is the thing that's missing. And that's why I think um, I said it wrong, not terrorist, trust is um, so important because it provides space for encounter. And actually what, and it is mostly Protestants in my experience learning there. And what you find is that if you just, you know, open the latch on the door and give it the tiniest little push, what you find is an Irish language community that is so generous and welcoming and will never laugh at your stupid pronunciation and has no expectation of you and is just delighted that you opened the door and thought to peek through and yeah. I, I just think there is no fear that's a shared language it's a mingled heritage and yeah. um, I do think more people are coming around to that I think again it's just a big yucky political narrative isn't it that's um, become something that it's not really. How do you think that the Good Friday Agreement um, changed attitudes, whether that's softening them or entrenching them amongst the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community? It's the Protestant Unionist Loyalist community. I suppose that's communities really, um, yeah. rather than one. Yeah. Well, it, uh, a variety of different things happened, I guess. Um, politically, there was a shift and over time, we've seen uh, an institutionalization of kind of binary politics of orange and green, because that's what votes count and that's how the whole thing is set up. But that was incredibly necessary to institute that power sharing at the time. So I've had like a political polarization. We've yeah. had a kind of a situation with violence, which is lessening and, you know, had real moments of um, former paramilitaries encountering difference and really engaging with things and then that's underpinned the peace process but then it's fractured off you know in kind of toxic ways 
um, amongst minority elements in both those communities since. I think what you've had on the ground though is absolutely an opening up of spaces for those encounters and like a safety and going places and doing things that you wouldn't have done before. So I think now looking 20 years after the agreement um, just this ecosystem of social relationships has changed. There are so many mixed marriages and relationships and dating. We had great fun over lockdown um, helping my friend guess on Grinder, which the, <laughs> he was Protestant, he was Catholic and <laughs> we were going to like negotiate those introductions um, and that was fun. And I just think that that's how we live our lives, don't we? Going to, to Slimming World and the photography club and, you know, the dog groomer and that all of those things, I think they are looser by the yeah. year. Um, I noticed that you are, while being very generous, I think, within a, a kind of a Protestant narrative of the North, you also push that and challenge that. How has your confidence grown in terms of pushing and challenging nationalism as well? The more that you've come closer to um, seeing yourself through the lens of Irishness, have you found the capacity to be critical about Irishness as well and, and pushing the nationalist community about things that you would just see to be um, sectarian or small minded? Yeah, absolutely. I know we've been focusing on the Protestant tradition and it's kind of easier to to get under the bonnet maybe of your own community and story and dissect that. But absolutely, I mean, my politics in some senses would be more like um, closer to Sinn Féin, for example, than some of the unionist parties. But I can say that and say I appreciate that their role in the peace process and in politics now. I'm delighted that Deirdre Hargey um, has been Minister for Communities because she's doing stuff that is looking after communities. But I think that there is just a sectarian uh, kind of river that runs through um, Catholic and nationalist Republican communities, the Protestants. I mean, it's all, it's all of our problem. Um, how it manifests itself is oh my worst one is get the ferry to Scotland then we'll pay for your <laughs> ticket when there's the United Ireland there is a complete sometimes dismissal of the pain that security forces families went through kind of dehumanization and um, that's problematic there's um I don't buy into any of this rewriting history stuff you know Republicans are seizing the narrative because I think history was the official record and that has needed to be corrected but there there can be a um uh, like an uncritical view of the struggle which i find problematic and I, I just think there's also a disconnect in how many republicans that maybe haven't met protestants um think they're going to be like <laughs> and they turn out to yeah. be like in practice those can be two different things and i just think encounter can change that. I don't think anything is irreparably broken. But that, yeah, there's work to be done everywhere. Um, Brexit was a popular idea with some unionists, maybe even many unionists, um, but yet now it seems to be threatening the UK union. Um, how do you think unionists are, are reckoning um, with with Brexit and what what might happen in terms of whether that's an in, uh, another go at Scottish independence or whether that's a border poll? I mean, I think most people would say at this stage it was a fairly bad plan um, in terms of stability in this place. When I think about Brexit, um, I just think about carelessness and, you know, the lack of care and thought which the British state um, thought to treat Northern Ireland with. And that's upsetting. And I'm sure that is really upsetting for a lot of unionists, you know, um, seeing the land border kind of protected and having to deal with the sea border. And that's a very, I mean, it's a functional thing in one sense, isn't it? Tariffs and paperwork and all, but it's a, it's an emotional and yeah. psychological thing. And I, I think that's hard. But that said, I do, I mean, see a, an adaptation amongst different types of unionists and people that I'm quite surprised about. Uh, just like you said, the reality is that English nationalism is becoming more of a factor politically. There's no way the Scots can wear that um, indefinitely. Um, 
things are changing, tectonic plates are shifting. And I, I do think that unionists, I mean, one of my fears about United Ireland is that Fina Gale and the DUP will make this like super party, <laughs> this right wing <laughs> kind of beast <laughs> that like lefties like us. And I, you know, I even see like my, there would be kind of unionist leaning people in my wider family. You'd be saying to me, Fina Gale attack videos about Sinn Féin. I don't know. It's like, is that, is that progress or, yeah. or not? I'm not sure. But well, certainly they're unexpected alliances, aren't they? And that, that could be interesting, if not if nothing else, to see how some of the parties in the Republic could make connections with some of the parties in the North. You know, but I think, though, it's like in 2020, what does unity even mean? Because all our politics now is global yeah. and all our politics in the future because of plague, because of floods, because of our digital lives, all politics will be local, local, local. And these states, the nation states are kind of 20th century constructions and they're the ones yeah. who will administer the stuff that's going to happen. But I just think politics with especially climate change is just going to be unrecognisable in 20 years. And that the, uh, she will stay in the union or <laughs> the Irish unity is... Yeah. Those that it's not a language that makes sense of the future, to me. I know. It'll, those will be subsidiary concerns, really, when you're looking at towns having to move certain parts because of flooding or different things like that. Um, I'd love to talk to you about your um, next book and your next project, um, which is looking at reviving radical Protestantism. I have a tagline for you, Claire, that you might want yeah. to use. I've wanted to write a poem about this for years, but I actually think that the, the line is yours. It's time to put the protest back in Protestant. That's not mine, but I'll happily say no, no, yes, it's mine. I said. But it's oh, yours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm um, giving it to you. Happily rob it then. Yeah, no, it's brilliant. That's... Good, good poets, good poets borrow, great poets. Steal. <laughs> so work away, steal it. <laughs> um, absolutely, I am determined to single-handedly, I think, bring back dissenterism because I'm not bringing it back. Like I'm just giving it a voice, and yeah. so Tell what us. I'm doing at the minute is um starting to work on a book about modern dissenters, which is that radical strain in the Protestant community that has always existed that has in many political moments had to be silent mm. um and which there is space now and it's safe and it's it needs to be given voice to so what i'm doing you know i like read stories and just spending time with people so yeah i've just been gathering up experiences and relationships and god love all my friends can <laughs> shoved in a book <laughs> against their will but you know i'm I've just tried to live as a dissenter, right? And maybe that sounds weird, but I've joined, I've been learning Irish for all these years. I've been part of the Green Party and trying to engage with environment and island. I have a lot of kind of Protestant nationalist friends who want to engage with that question via constitutional politics. I also have friends that I go grave hooking with, you know, <laughs> like re pulling back the weeds and the graves of United Irishmen and just all the different ways, you know, like feminist and LGBTQ activists, they're very radical Protestants, trade unionists, even, you know, socialist loyalists. I'm just interested in finding that spirit of dissent and maybe dissent isn't the right word for it, but just giving voice and embodying and living and then introducing other people to this way of being a Protestant, which is all I've ever known. And um, whilst I've studied other traditions, if you like, this feels like my tribe and my people. And I just want to share that because I think there's a lot in there that can muddy up the binaries in Northern Ireland and make things more complicated in a good way. Claire Mitchell, thanks very much for joining us for the Coramila podcast. Coramaikit, Fajik. Our guest this week was writer and sociologist Dr. Claire Mitchell. You can find links to her writing and current projects on her website, clairemitchell.net. That's in our show notes too. 
Don't forget to listen right to the end when Claire has some intriguing answers to our very short story questions. Thanks for listening to the Carmilla podcast. I'm Padraig Tuma, and I'll be back with another episode next week when I'll be joined by a very special guest, The Edge from U2. Music and rhythm were two things that I was fascinated with from a very young age. I do remember playing biscuit tins to the music on the, the TV test card. I didn't develop a faith really through church. In ways you might say I was somewhat inoculated against faith by my early church experiences. So be sure to spread the word to any U2 fans you might know and join us for that next week. The Corrie Miller podcast comes to you with generous support from our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Fund for Reconciliation from the Irish Government, the Community Relations Council of Northern Ireland, and the Friends of Corrie Miller who give monthly or annually. The Corrie Miller podcast is a fan fun production. Thanks to researcher and producer Emily Rowling. The podcast was mixed by Fra Sands at Safe Place Studios. Claire, could you tell us about a time when your national identity felt important to you? So I'm going to be really annoying for these questions, Podrick, and question the terms of all of them. <laughs> Great. I don't know what national identity is because I don't really connect my Irishness necessarily with the Irish state, whose government I'm not necessarily loving. Uh, I feel more internationalist. But that said, there was a moment early in lockdown. Do you remember when the Republic of Ireland locked down a week before the British state? And I can only describe a feeling of physical pain, like a, a visceral helplessness. And it was very traumatic. I can't really describe it. Um, that the right thing was happening, like in the South and we were institutionally bound to the British state, which kind of in a fashion got itself together a week after that. But that was a moment where national identity didn't seem hypothetical. It felt like life and death. Has anyone ever said that they thought that you were being disloyal to your cultures or your identities? This question is hilarious to me because, um, yeah, all the time. I feel like in a minute I hovered my hand over the keyboard to begin writing for a public audience, you know, three or four years ago. Somebody else's hand was over the L key, ready to type Lundy, you know, and I've had that constantly since. Um, and I love the term Lundy leash. You know, Lundy is an insult for a Protestant who strayed too far away from Unionist orthodoxy. And that's the feeling of being jerked back and pecked, you know, back <laughs> into your row. But Lundy has become a word that, you know, I've, al I've almost kind of reclaimed in the way that queer was reclaimed or the N-word, which I don't feel that's a word that's mine to say, but I can say it with Lundy. Now, when I hear somebody being called that, a disloyal Protestant, my first idea is, oh, they sound really interesting, which I'd be good <laughs> mates for them. <laughs> Tell me more. Do you know? So uh -huh. it's not an insult to me. It's You're free. putting the love back in Lundy and the protest back in Protestant. Listen, I'm taking notes. You're writing my book for me. <laughs> <laughs>